Welcome to the Hunters and Closers podcast. I'm Dana Haggard, and I'm here to help you fill your pipeline, decrease your time to close, and crush your sales quotas. Welcome to Hunters and Closers. This is Dana Haggard. Today I'm joined with, by Joe Staples, CMO of Motivosity. Really excited to talk with you, Joe. Thanks for joining. Thank you. So Joe is a senior B2B executive currently serving as the chief marketing officer for Motivosity, which is an employee recognition software currently used by companies like Avanti, Instructure, Clearlink, and Workfront. He specializes in SaaS, MarTech, employee engagement, and the customer experience sectors. His ex- expertise is in building a powerful, differentiated brand and fueling the growth of the revenue engine and he prides himself in providing a great blend of strategy and execution. Joe has built demand generation teams from scratch, which I'm really excited to talk about today, implemented strong digital marketing campaigns, and has led a marketing team that delivered 90% of all sales opportunities for the company. That's just unprecedented. So uh, just really excited to talk with Joe today, get his perspective and how that will help all of you sales and marketing individuals in your hunting and closing large, big deals. So thank you, Joe, for joining today on, on the podcast. You bet. Quite an introduction. Thanks. <laughs> well, you created it, right? I mean, it's your life. So if I asked you, what, what do the words hunter and closer mean to you? What would you say? Well, certainly on the, on the hunting side, it's... Uh, goes back to establishing brand up front uh, and then moves through the sales cycle looking at uh, demand generation, uh, personal relationships, uh, establishing uh, a social footprint that will allow you to do social selling. Uh, So I think that one's certainly a very, very broad one. The closing one seems to be a, a bit more narrow in my mind, and that is, you know, once you've got somebody, once somebody is interested, uh, how do you how do you turn them into a customer? How do you monetize them? Yeah, thank you. So, with that in mind, uh, you you have created from the ground up and managed, you know, very large organization of ADMs, BDRs, SDRs, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> uh, when, in your mind and in your experience, when do I want to I want to dig into the relationship between an SDR and an AE? When do they flourish? When do they work best the two together? Well, I think it's changed a bit. I think early on, they could operate maybe a little bit more separately because it was, you know, those BDRs or ADMs just doing pure outreach. So they were just trying to engage somebody that they could hand off as a qualified opportunity to a salesperson. But today, you know, nobody picks up their phone. Uh, Email either gets filtered out or the ones that don't get filtered out uh, get ignored. Uh, So now I think you've got to establish a relationship and and a pretty strong common game plan between the ADM and and the AE where they decide, you know, what are we going to do? Who are we going to go after? How are we going to go after them? Which, what's my role? What's your role? And, and really create uh, a, quite a bit more of a strategy around uh, you know, trying to secure those leads than just the old dialing for dollars or 
email blasts. It's a lot more targeted, you're saying, if you have this territory, just owning the territory together, right, and building out this plan together of how you're going to attack. Yeah, I think the one distinction, I, you know, a lot has been said around account-based marketing and, you know, targeting who you want to sell to. The challenge with that is they may not want to be sold to. They may not be in a, in a position or in a cycle where they're looking for a product like yours. Uh, so I still think there's a big distinction between active demand and latent demand. And so one of the responsibilities that I think marketing teams own is how to, how to find those uh, people that are in active demand cycles, people that are looking for a product like yours or looking to solve a problem that your product sells or solves. And I think the distinction is those are the ones that are going to be the most fruitful. Uh, the, the bigger fish, as you, as you define an ABM strategy and really go after companies that you think make sense as, as potential customers for you, I think those are uh, a bit more of the additive pieces. Those are the things that really can propel a company. But if, if all you're doing is trying to generate demand from latent demand opportunities, uh, I, I think that's a tough road. Have you seen, so talking about a tough road, you know, we always learn from our failures. Have you seen instances where the relationship between the AE and the SDR did not work out? And what did you learn from that? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with trust. And, and you know, salespeople recognize that they own the number. At the end of the day, they're the primary owner of the number. And oftentimes they don't want to have anything negatively impact or influence uh, that number. And so, you know, they'll kind of uh, maybe pigeonhole the ADM a bit and say, well, you just do this and, and, and I'll take care of this. And there's not a lot of coordination and, and there's kind of a lack of trust. And I, that just doesn't work. It just kind of disintegrates. The greatest examples are when uh, there's trust between the two individuals, when that AE is understanding that the ADM has a, a role to play, even though an ADM is typically, uh, you know, more of a junior uh, associate, I mean, less experienced than, a, than an AE, um, they recognize that they're going to add value, that they need them, that they can't get to their number without them. And, uh, and so they put that trust in them, they help tutor them, they mentor them, they train them, they work closely together, and that's when I think things flourish. That's great insight. So if, if you were looking at building a new SDR team, um, as you've done in the past, what are the skills that you found that are most important for an SDR? When do they, what, what do you need to have to be a good SDR? So probably the thing that I would discount uh, or take off of the table is that you have to have had SDR ADM experience in the past. I think, you know, you're looking for somebody who's got the temperament and, and ability to be very outgoing. Uh, they, they're creative in kind of their ways to uh, solve problems and approach people. Uh, they're willing to experiment. They're not going to get down when, uh, when they get, you know, when they go through a lot of rejections. I think if you can find the personality type, you can teach them the skills, the skills of, you know, how to have a conversation, 
what the product does, how the product uh, you know, can solve various problems. Those are all things you can train. I, I think that the, the core attributes that you're looking for is, is, is that personality type right. I, one other thing is I think, I, I, I don't know if I've ever met somebody who has a career goal to be a BDR for the rest of their life. <laughs> it's, you know, they, they, they want to do other things. The, the important thing is do they see a path into a sales role? Because that's the motivation for them. I mean, the, a BDR has two, mo two main motivations. One is I'm going to get some added money if I find a new lead. And two, if I'm a star, I'm going to get promoted and get an AE job where I'm going to make even, even more money. And so if, if, they, if they don't have the career path into sales, sometimes into marketing, but primarily into sales, then the only motivator is I make more money if I get a lead. And that's just a short-term motivator. It's, it's not going to do the job. What really is going to be the motivator for them is I'm going to be the star. I'm going to be the, the top of the, uh, of the ladder of BDRs. And when the next sales role opens up, somebody's going to tap me on the shoulder because of the performance that I've had. And we've both seen that many times, right, where, where someone did stand out and was a star and, and did get that promotion. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. That's fulfillment. Um, what do you think a healthy balance is? Uh, you know, when you look at the number of leads that should be generated by marketing and those that should be self-generated by the AE. Yeah, I like, the, I like our model at Motivocity. Uh, we're we're, the goal is 50-50, that uh, the AEs look at their number and say, I need to generate 50% uh, of those opportunities coming in the door, and I have a partnership with an ADM where... Uh, they're going to generate the other 50%. You know, in my intro, you said that... 90%. Yeah, that we had one where it was 90%. Um, it was bad. I, I'm not proud of that. It was, it was swayed too far the other way. Uh, and I think the challenges with it are uh, AE-generated leads close at a higher rate than BDR uh, leads do. Uh, the other thing is unless the AE feels that they have the responsibility to find new opportunities, you're leaving a lot of, uh, a lot of potential revenue on the table because AEs are going to get into places that ADMs aren't, or BDRs aren't ever uh, going to get into. Uh, they can operate typically at a higher level uh, in the organization. They're usually in the field, and so they have local relationships mm -hmm. that are centralized BDR team doesn't. Uh, so all those things, you lose the benefit of all those things if the way you build your model is that that AE says, if all I do is rely on a BDR to give me every lead, I'm going to fall short of my quota. I have to generate uh, a certain amount myself. And and I like our model. I think 50-50 is a good, good approach. That's much more healthy in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, right. So when you were thinking back on that, that split where you had 90-10, if you will, what were some of the negative results of that? Did it affect the sales team? Did it affect the, the marketing team? What were some of the results? You know, I think the biggest negative was that you end up with some AEs who 
falls short of their number, and when you dig into it, they say, well, I didn't get enough leads. Not, I didn't generate right. enough leads. Right. It was, I didn't get enough leads. And so they fall into this trap of, of uh, being dependent on somebody else versus thinking, I own my number, and I know that I have to generate new business uh, in order to do that. Uh, you know, I think there, there's some lack of motivation for them around establishing relationships because they're not using those relationships to generate new business anyway, so, so why do it? So it's so much more healthy when they feel that, you know, I own a portion of this and I'm waking up every morning thinking, yes, I have business that I have to close, but I also have business that I have to introduce and, and generate from scratch. Um, I had a good conversation last week with Frank Maylett. I believe you've worked with him in the past. He's a good, he's a good one. Yeah. I remember him also talking in our conversation uh, about how he's seen sales representatives fall into that trap where it's almost like a bird waiting for its mom to come feed it a worm, and eventually it's going to die. You know, mom's not going to show up at some point and give you a worm. You've got you've to learn to go find your own. Exactly. And I think it also creates uh, the ability to still hit your number if the BDR is a little bit short that month or you have a turnover in a BDR and you introduce somebody new that still is ramping, uh, then the AE picks up the slack. Or the exact opposite. The AE's new and ramping or, uh, you know, has, has uh, kind of a downturn in their prospecting efforts. The ADM's there to, to shore it up. Otherwise, you kind of have this single point of failure. Right. Uh, you know, it's, if, if the BDR or ADM doesn't perform, Territory doesn't perform. That's what happens when you're, when ninety percent comes through that <laughs> single funnel. <laughs> so, in your mind and your experience, what what does a healthy relationship look like between the sales organization and the marketing organization? I've seen it where marketing rolls up to sales. I've seen it where SDR rolls up to sales. I've seen it where they're separate. What what works best in your mind? Uh, so, as far as the reporting relationship, so where the BDRs report, do they report into sales or do they report into marketing? I don't think it matters. I think it can work either way. And um, I, I would, personally, I would never, ever get hung up on that. If I went to work for a company and they said, hey, all, all the BDRs don't work for you, they work for the sales team, I'd say, great. I don't, doesn't matter to me. Uh, there are trade-offs in, in both scenarios. Um, you know, for a, for a BDR to work for marketing, they're they tend to be clo more closely aligned with campaigns that are being run. They understand them a little bit better. They probably, I think, get trained in a little bit more of a strategic way. When they work for the sales side, um, you know, the relationship between the BDR and, and the AE tends to be a, a bit tighter and stronger. The approach that they use in prospecting probably gets aligned a little bit better. Uh, but again, I think, it can, I think it can work either way. So you've, you've said in the past, I read an article of yours, when marketing and sales act as partners, they are better able to share their story with leads and turn them into customers, who then become raving fans. A senior marketing leader who doesn't have an intimate knowledge of how the sales process works is going to struggle. Can you elaborate a little bit upon that? What? Yeah, so I th I, you know, that I think takes, you know, let's take the BDR team and kind of set mm -hmm. them off to the side. Set now them. we're talking about sales and marketing and how they... Uh, work together. There are a lot of marketers that just don't understand the sales process. They've never been in a sales role. They look at it much more uh, 
as kind of a generic broad brush approach versus you know specifics and how how somebody moves through the funnel and so I think a lot of it can be solved but oftentimes isn't solved by marketing people getting into the sales process follow a salesperson around uh, fly to a territory and get in the car with them and don't think that you're there to contribute there you're there to learn and you're just watching how it works what customers object to where stumbling blocks uh, were for a for a prospect and then i think those marketing people are then armed and able to go back and really dig into all right now let's let's tweak or change the way we market because now i have a better understanding of how customers and the sales process actually works how do you align your kpis if you will uh, with sales and marketing so that they're both there to you know to benefit the bottom line of the business how do you do that i i, I think that's a tricky one um you know the the easy answer that i think some people jump to is you both own the number you both own the the that end number the challenge with that is bdr's struggle because they feel that so much of their compensation is now out of their control uh, so yeah i own a I own an end number, but there may be a sales cycle that's, uh, you know, 180 days. I'm reliant upon how good that salesperson is at closing the deal. So I think you can tie some compensation to a total number, but BDRs need to make money based on uh, a qualified opportunity. Sales and marketing agree to what that qualification is, and when... The BDR brings in something that fits that qualification. The cash register rings and, and they get some compensation for it. So, you know, I think the alignment part is a, a bit of a challenge and a lot of that comes in the upfront agreement as to what's a qualified opportunity? How early do we want it to, to ring the cash register and be put in the hands of an AE? You know, I learned a long time ago that uh, putting more opportunities in the hands of a salesperson isn't necessarily a good thing uh, because what often happens is you're giving them things that are too early and they're they're just working things that aren't ever going to turn into anything versus let that BDR and the marketing team be the ones that nurture an opportunity to where uh, they're really ready to now talk to a salesperson they're probably not all the way to where now it's time to sign on the dotted line and, and accept the purchase order. But uh, the marketing team and the BDR team have taken them farther down the path. I think that's, that's a valid point. I've seen you know, experiences where the lead comes across and they forget who they're even talking with or it's just not, you know, they're interested maybe a year from now. And, and most oftentimes the sales representative doesn't invest themselves into that lead and lets it go by the wayside, whereas a marketer could put it in a drip campaign or something like that. Yep, really good point. Yep, really good point. So I want to talk a little bit more about the marketing department itself. Let's shift off of the SDRs. Um, how do you build a marketing culture that is exciting and people love coming to work and, and they love the brand that they're, they're building? How do you build that? What's important to build a good marketing culture? You know, I think uh, I think marketers love seeing wins. They love seeing the name of the company in lights and in print and 
uh, in big graphics on at events, all those kinds of things. And sharing that, uh, I think, is is super important. You know, one of the core pieces of motivosity is is built around employee appreciation. If you know, we look at it and say, if if you're trying to get an employee to to go a hundred yards and accomplish something. You need to celebrate with them at yard five and at yard 10 and at yard 15. And they need to feel that you know, their work matters and, and what they're doing is contributing to, to the success of the business. Uh, so I think that's one. I think um, helping them uh, better understand the, the total marketing process, especially as you get into bigger companies. A marketer can be very specific into a you know, my job is running pay-per-click campaigns. If, if that's all they feel that their job is, then they kind of run out of gas Not very pretty fulfilling. quickly. Yeah, but if they see that their pay-per-click campaigns generate this many top-of-funnel leads, which then translate down into opportunities that go to sales, which, uh, you know, if you can come back to that employee or that group with information about, hey, we just closed this deal, and it came from your pay-per-click campaign. I mean, those are the things that uh, that'll light up a marketer. I think the one other thing that's uh, that's pretty neat, and it's all, it's almost becoming a lost art in marketing, is branding. Hmm. Marketing has shifted so much to demand generation. What are you doing to bring a lead in the door? And so. Uh, the skills of marketers around building a brand that resonates with people that they can identify with, that uh, contribute to their overall buying experience, and how you do that through electronic media, through, uh, through events and trade shows, through user conferences, all those things are, are exciting to a marketer, but uh, the, the marketing leader needs to know what they're doing when it comes to that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Do you think that that shift from not being great at building brands is because of social media or things, things like that? Or do you think it's simply because the board members are more greedy and want more money? I think it's the sales pressure. It is, you know, so many businesses when it comes to sales and marketing says, we have one goal and it's, here's the revenue goal. How do you get there? And then you get, you know, certainly a sales team driving backwards from that number and saying, I need this many opportunities. And before you know it, the marketing team says, all right, we're putting every dollar we can to try and hit that opportunity number. The problem with it is it's a short-sighted view. Uh, branding, is a, branding has a, a long tail to it. Uh, you know, the, the activities that you do this year to build brand probably aren't going to make much difference to the number that you have. And you have investors that are, you know, kind of, saying, hey, you got to hit your number. Uh, but if you can, if you, if you got patient board members, patient investors, a patient CEO who will say, no, I understand that building a great brand is the economic, economically the best way to grow this business, that's, uh, that's when it's going to be great. So I'll give you an example. Uh, so I worked for, I was the CMO of Interactive Intelligence. And uh, we, we decided, or I decided, and convinced the CEO, we're going we're to go build a brand. Because building a brand then means 
you don't knock on every door trying to sell somebody something. People are then coming to you because your brand resonates and it has uh, and it has mind share. So we started. We we did a brand audit, looked at uh, how much brand recognition the company already had. Brand audit came back. Uh, the the raw score, which is the percentage of people who even knew the name of our company, was six percent. Mm. So it was terrible, right? But I was a new CMO, so so I thought this is great. Like there's nowhere to go but up. <laughs> and so uh, we invested. We started running ads and doing all kinds of creative things. We came back nine months later, reran the brand audit. The, the core question being, uh, are you familiar with a company by the name of Interactive Intelligence? 6%. Hadn't moved the needle. What? 1%. After point. nine months. After nine months. And so now I'm, now I'm going. Pressure's uh, on. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, but again, a patient CEO. So I went back to him and said, the thing that we learned out of this is that it takes more than nine months to build a brand or to move the needle on the brand. And so he agreed. He said, all right, and you know, gave me some more money, and we continued to invest. We then went back a year after that and had moved it into the 20s, uh, as far as percentage goes. Uh, a year after that, we were above 50%. And we peaked probably pretty close to 80%. But it was an executive decision that we're going to invest in our brand. And again, I think that is a long-term view of how to build a business, which is very different than, no, you said you would deliver this many opportunities. You better, you know, that's the only thing that matters. Do you, long-term, do you think you get a better ROI on your investment building the brand like that? Absolutely. Long-term, absolutely. Short-term, there's some pain because, you know, we we would take, uh, you know, let's say we took a million dollars and invested it into brand, you can generate a lot of leads for a million dollars. But again, the, the challenge is if you, have, if you have no brand equity, if people don't know your brand, it's hard. Your salespeople may have the best, absolute best product, and they're trying to get into a business, and that business goes, I've never heard of you before. Yeah. And, and the, uh, the thing that prompted us to, to take a brand strategy at Interactive Intelligence is right after I landed uh, that job, I went and asked just about every salesperson. I said, I'm, I'm the head of marketing. What can I do for you? And their answer was, take away the objection. I've never heard of interactive intelligence before. And I thought, OK, if, if I get rid of that, then you've got a great product. You've got the sales skills to sell it. Uh, I, I need to do my job. That's great. That's a great story. That was one that I had pulled up from your history, and you kind of beat me to the punch. But I'm glad that you gave us all the details on that. Thank you. So in your marketing career, did you ever miss any of your quarterly KPIs? <laughs> and if you did, how did you that affect you? You should ask hit any of my KPIs. <laughs> uh, so what's the second part of the question? So how does that affect you mentally if you miss your number? Oh. Or, and what do you do to ensure that it doesn't happen again? You know, I think... I think uh, I think you sign up in the very beginning as a marketing executive that you, you know this isn't uh, this isn't a foolproof game. You're you're going to miss things. Uh, things aren't going to go your way. Everything's going to look great, and all of a sudden, you know, some hiccups going to happen right in the middle. You're going to go to an event that you think is going to generate uh, 
you know, 500 opportunities and it generates 50 opportunities because you picked it wrong. Um, so I, you know, I think I think experimenting is is part of the deal. I can I can you know I can remember a, a four hundred thousand dollar campaign that I put together. I thought it was brilliant. I don't think we sold one thing from it. It was a it was a just a flop. Um, but I didn't know it was going to be a flop, and and you know I look at the other ones and say. Uh, you know, if I wouldn't, if I if I was overly cautious, uh, we wouldn't have done some of the ones that did pay off really, really well. Um, so, you know, I think you build the best plan that that you can to get to the number that you think you can get to. You constantly experiment and you constantly look at uh, you know tweaks that you can make and things that you can change to to get there. But with the realization that you know you got a job to do and you better hit the number, but there's going to be hiccups. You're not going to get it every time. Yeah. I think the key is you just you realize that, right? Just like you said, you experiment different things and you bring in the best minds, you know, that you can and work together and do the best you can, right? Yeah. And then and it doesn't work out. you don't have out. that $400,000 flop. We <laughs> used an outside agency. It was a brilliant campaign. <laughs> well, I'm sure it was I'm sure it was up to par. So I've, I've had a lot of experience with different sales representatives that have such a, a very perspective of their personal online presence. What are some online practices, you know, best practices that salespeople should practice, you know, on their online social media that can help them with the bottom line? Yeah, I, this has been fascinating. And, you know, it's probably been something that I've, uh, you know, been real actively engaged in maybe for the last five or six years. Uh, you know, top of the list is recognize that everything is visible, that you're not going to hide anything. So don't think, well, I've got my business persona over here, and then I'm going to put all this, you know, crazy fun stuff over there. It just doesn't work that way. So I think, uh, you know, don't do anything dumb. Uh, don't put anything out there that's, uh, that's, uh, that's questionable that would cause somebody to think, I don't, I don't know if I want to do business with these guys or this, uh, you know, this individual. That aside, you know, kind of taking that as a given, um, I, I think uh, an important thing is can, can you add value? Can you write and promote uh, socially things that people find insightful that either causes them to think, I'm going I'm to connect with this person or I'm going to... I'm going to comment and ask some questions or I'm going to engage in a conversation because I just think what you write and what you post about is, is so insightful. Uh, and that's hard for some people to do. Some people just aren't writers and they just, you know, it would, it would take them forever to, to do. But developing that skill, I think, is just really important. Then how you engage with other people socially is the other thing that's that's pretty fascinating. Um, play. This will sound. This will sound very self-serving, but playing to people's ego works. Uh, you know, if you've got somebody who just won an award and they've just posted that on their LinkedIn profile, and that's a company and an individual that you want to do business with, you know, start by complimenting them on this award. Uh, they'll pay attention to that. If you come to them with hey, I have this great software application, would you like to buy it? You're just blended into the noise. But egotistically, 
everybody will respond to the compliments of the award they won or uh, you know, something that they wrote that got published. Uh, so playing off of that is, uh, is, is a good way to do it. The other mistake that way too many people make is looking at social media as, as, uh, as a very short-term way of engaging with people. So I, all, of all the invitations that I get on LinkedIn, I don't accept a real lot of them. And if it says that they're an AE or a BDR, I'll rarely accept them. Because what inevit inevitably happens is we connect, and five, five minutes, minutes later, later <laughs> here comes the, hey, we have this great software application that we'd love to sell to you. Compared to compliment them, engage with them, share you know, a piece of content with them, connect with them, share another piece of content with them, have a relationship, and then once that relationship's there, then at the right time you can come back and go, you know, Dean and have you, what are you guys doing for, for employee engagement? What have you found useful? You know, we have an application, blah, 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 and, you, and, and then there's a relationship uh, involved. Yeah, that's, that's valid advice, and I've, it, it's worked so well in, in my past, and I've seen it work with a lot of other AEs. you just got to build that relationship rather than pounding them and trying to get them to yeah. buy your product immediately. Right. Completely agree. I, I th you know, one, one last one is get a good profile. Uh, a lot of people shortcut that, and, you know, they post uh, where they work. At, I got a list of where I worked, and I got a picture of the last time I went on a hike or something like that, and I think I'm done. That's not going to engage somebody. Uh, most people, when they get outreach from, from you, they're going to go hit your profile. They're going to go, who is this person? What are they like? And if, they're, if they see things that you've commented on, articles that you've published, uh, you know, a nice description of who you are and the value that you deliver, maybe a better description of what the company does that you work for, they're more likely to engage with you. Yeah, it's always uh, eye-opening sometimes just to Google yourself and see what comes up in the search results. Yeah, I've got, what do I have? I have a, a baseball player from the, uh, from the 1800s, Joe Staples. I have a, a guy that was in World War II, Joe Staples, that I think lost his leg. Um, I have a guy that's in prison, a nice. Joe Staples in prison. <laughs> and, then, and then the guy that trumps me every time is, uh, is a Joe Staples that's, uh, that's a pretty high-profile ad exec. And, uh, I've seen him, too. Yeah, he, 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 I always have to go down to, like, page six to find myself. <laughs> well, it is eye-opening. It's good to, good to do it. Do you have a favorite book, conference, or thought leader that could open up some of these sales representatives' eyes on how to be better online? You know, uh, probably more around leadership than, uh, than uh, sales principles. I'm a big Patrick Lencioni fan. He's great. Uh, so, uh, you know, his latest book, The Advantage, uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I just think his, his thinking is so straightforward. You don't have to really wade through a lot to get it. He just kind of tells it exactly like it is, and you go, that makes so much sense. How come I didn't think of that? Uh, we had an opportunity last year to spend a whole day with him. Uh, there were six of us, I think, in, in the room, and just kind of talked through things, and it was a real highlight. So I think uh, if I had to pick you know, 
if I was going to go be on a deserted island with some books, those his are be Patrick's. That, yeah, I'd pick. I do like Patrick a lot. So let's shift roles a little bit and talk about closing here in the last few minutes. What role does marketing play in helping sales close the deal? Yeah, really, I marketing plays a, a strong role, and a lot of marketers don't understand that. A lot of marketers gravitate to top of funnel only. Uh, but for a marketer to look at the entire sales cycle and say, okay, part of my job is top of funnel, identifying and bringing in new opportunities, but what do I do to move those opportunities through the sales cycle? So do I have mid-funnel content that uh, helps somebody to better understand what our product is? Uh, Do I have a champion kit that says, you know, once I've sold my primary contact, I know that that primary contact has to go get the CFO to say yes and maybe the CEO to say yes and other uh, people that are involved in the decision. Am I arming him or her with content and, and ammunition to, to go in there and champion uh, the product? So that mid-funnel piece is, is super important. And then I think at the very back end, when it's time to, to close a deal, uh, for, a, for a customer or prospect to think that they're going to have marketing support when they launch, when they introduce the product into their organization, uh, can, can go a long way as well. I found a, a quote from one of your other articles. It says, leads may be initially attracted to an organization through thought leadership content, but as they move their way through the buying process, as you just talked about, the sales team needs sales enablement messages that meet leads where they are. How do you de- determine the right sales enablement messages that need to be crafted for the team, the sales team? So some of it is based on back to that active and latent demand. So if someone is in an active buying cycle uh, and they're looking for a product like yours, they just don't know if it's yours or a competitor's yet, that's a very different conversation than you're approaching somebody with an outbound email or call. They're not even thinking about it, whatever you're, whatever you're pitching to them. Uh, and, and too often, both marketing and sales organizations think that one size fits all and they'll group those two together and just go after them in the same way. So I think that's a good example of enabling sales to understand where that buyer is in their process, active or or latent and how you approach them. And then as you move through uh, through the buying cycle, helping them understand that you're not done when you have your champion saying, I love this, This I am going to go propose this. Great. What, how are you going to propose it? When somebody objects with this objection, Mr. or Ms. Champion, what are you going to say? Uh, too often, you know, you see the champion run up the hill, and they're half invested, and somebody says, what would we do that for? And they say, yeah, that's what I was thinking. What would we do that for? And, you know, and the, and the deal dies. Uh, and so I think marketing plays a, a really significant role in enabling sales to be able to to know what are those stages and and what's the messaging to 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 use in each of those stages. That's great. Can you think of an experience when, as a CMO, either here at Motivosity or another company you've worked at, where say, sales was able to engage with you and leverage your 
your skills or your background to help close a deal? Oh, I- you know, at, at Workfront, one of the big benefits that I had, and this is probably a, a cheater's answer, is we sold to marketing teams. So I was able to go in as a resource and say, well, here's how we use Workfront inside of our marketing team to accomplish this, this, and this. And, you know, that, that would resonate with them. That's, that's probably a luxury. So you know, if we look at uh, motivosity or, or interactive intelligence where we're calling on non-marketing teams, I, frankly, I, th- I think sometimes the marketer can bring uh, uh, just added credibility to what the salesperson is, is telling them. Um, certainly, as a, as a C-level executive, I've got the opportunity to sit in front of customers with some credibility around just what my title is and talk to them about plans and have them feel that, okay, these, these are solid plans. These aren't, you know, the infield territory salesperson telling me this. I've got an executive who's, uh, who's confirming everything else that I've heard. I think those can be beneficial. In my career, I've closed several multi-million dollar deals, and uh, it was always best when I could bring in a whole team of sales, marketing, operations, you know, the whole team together, and we all worked closely on how are we going to get this done, how are we going to champion this through, and I think that if you can have that collaboration where you've got multiple minds in the room working together, because everyone's going to have different backgrounds, different right. connections, yeah. you know, things like that, I think it's really, really beneficial. And, and I think too often the, the customer can look at, you know, if their single point of contact is the the AE, they they just question, you know, well, what if something happens to you? Or, you know, I'm kind of trusting everything. Yeah, everything that I've heard, I'm just, I'm placing all my trust in one person. If that, if everything they hear gets kind of triangulated with other points of view and, and they're hearing it from other people, yeah, I think they, their comfort level with a, with a big decision is quite a bit easier. Yeah. Uh, as a chief marketing officer, how would you recommend sales professionals then engage with their their marketing departments or their marketing leaders to help them when it makes sense? So two things come to mind. One is the personal relationship between the AE and their assigned BDR. Best example I ever saw is we were at an, a, a sales kickoff event and they're doing raffles and they're they're drawing names uh, for for prizes, and they draw a name and it's the the AE. And I remember he he won a drone, and I thought, wow, that's really cool. And he walked up and he picked up the drone, and he walked back down, wove his way through the the tables, and he set it in front of the BDR, and then went went back and and sat back down, and I thought. You know, I don't know what the drone cost at that time, but I thought that BDR will do anything for that AE now uh, versus sometimes, you know, the, the relationship can be uh, a bit adversarial and, and you know, the, the, the BDR doesn't really think the AE cares much about them. So I think that building those kind of relationships, doing any of those kinds of things that are impactful is one thing that's important. The other one is, and this goes back to one of the times that you and I worked together, 
too often the the salespeople, you know, they they stand back and they go, yep, uh, you know, I'm not getting enough leads, or I don't, you know, there's not enough business, versus coming to the marketing team and saying, what can I do? What could I do in my territory? What can we do together in my territory? I, you know, um, my uh, my pipeline is is smaller than than I hope. What can I do? I never, and I've had some that are just relentless, like they're in there every day asking me what they can do. I never felt that they were oppressive or or crossing boundaries. I always thought those are the ones that are going to go do something with the work that I as a as a marketer does. So that whole, you know, be the squeaky wheel, be the one that's in there asking questions, uh, making suggestions, even if the suggestions, you know, don't get uh, agreed to, you, you then develop kind of this working relationship around a specific territory. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's, that is great. And then the last question I'd like to ask is leadership. So this is just surrounding leadership. You've had many leadership responsibilities throughout your career. Do you feel that leaders should be feared or respected, and why? That's a softball question. <laughs> have you ever had anybody say feared? I have. You really? Yeah, I have. Wow. <laughs> I didn't think those people existed. <laughs> you know, I definitely think it's uh, it's respect, and I think the respect comes from uh, other members of the organization that look at that individual and and they just they respect their knowledge, they respect their experience, they respect their ideas, they respect their integrity, they respect. Uh, the way that they collaborate, all of those kinds of things uh, just come into play. I think the biggest challenge with with leadership is t- too many uh, executives don't work very hard at it. You know, they, they have a line job. So for me, as an example, I have a line job to build a brand, to develop sales enablement tools, and to do demand generation. And you can consume... 110% of your day doing those things. But I think you, it's really important that you carve out uh, some portion of time where you're reading things, where you know, you're learning, you're listening to podcasts, uh, you're taking uh, leadership assessments uh, and getting coaching on the things that, that you still struggle with or you're trying to de- develop. Because it's not going to happen by accident. You're not, time in the chair doesn't make it to where, wow, you know, I didn't pay really much attention to it, but I'm a lot better leader than I was five years ago. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, if you want to be a better leader five years from now, you you absolutely need to work at it and figure out, uh, you know, what changes you need to make and then work at making those changes. Self-awareness is probably a big part of that, understanding you know, what you're good at and what you still have some uh, room to work on. That's great. So if you're in an elevator with someone, 30 seconds, tell us about Motivosity. Yeah, Motivosity is a great company. We're, we're, we're having a great time. Uh, we've got some wonderful uh, customers. I haven't started the elevator. The door hasn't closed yet, so I haven't <laughs> started the pitch yet because otherwise you'll tell me that's way too long. Going to like the 78th floor. Um, so Motivosity is a software application for peer recognition. 
And at the core of what we do, we believe that people are more productive, more loyal, more engaged when they're happy at work. And the way they become happy at work is uh, they feel appreciated for the work that they're doing. And so we have a software application that operationalizes that, and uh, it's super effective. Uh, we've got, uh, uh, across our customer base, 95% uh, usage engagement rate uh, without anybody ever having to remind somebody, hey, have you logged into Motivocity? It just happens. Uh, it's, a, it's a great great application. I've used it personally, and, and uh, talking about that relationship between the SDR and the AE, and it's great a great platform to go in and just you know, celebrate a win with them and thank them and reward them and, and for the whole company then to see the great work that the SDR or the BDR has, has done. So Yeah, so as it. impressive as, as that drone giveaway was for me, you know, it was limited to the people in the room that saw it. So there was no social feed that let everybody else see it. It was a bit more expensive. These are, you know, kind of small monetary gifts that are funded by the company. But yeah, it just goes a long way when somebody gets uh, a broad shout out for, wow, you know, that lead that you brought in, I think is going to make my number this year. How does that BDR feel when they see that and they know their boss saw that and they know all their peers saw that? It's a huge motivator. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a great, great platform and wish you all the success that, that you deserve. It's going to be great watching where Mode Vossi goes and Appreciate you taking some time with us today. Thanks. Thank you.